Hello and welcome to Deep Dive. My guest today is Mark Mecki, speaker, author, consultant and advisor on digital innovation, design thinking and the future of travel and tourism. He is a co-founder of Bond, a virtual community and management platform and writes for various publications, including, I'm happy to say, Association Meetings International. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, James. Nice to be here. So, Mark, you know a lot about community, building communities, managing communities. How do you think the pandemic changed the value proposition of international associations? Um, well, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think one of the, the issues that I often deal with and that probably the industry deals with is that there are a little bit too many generalizations uh, in, in the debates surrounding associations. It's such an extremely broad and deep sector that what is true for a small association of a few hundred members is, is not necessarily true for a major, large, well-funded organization with, with tens of thousands of members. So I think it's very difficult to make a, 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 to give you a holistic answer uh, to that question, what has changed in the value proposition. I think if you're, if you're an association with tens of thousands of members in, in the medical sector, for example, and you are largely there as a member for, in many cases, for the accreditation and the, the annual conference, then probably the value proposition will not have changed that much. If you're a small uh, association, for example, let's say two or 300, I don't know, architects in an association, then your entire reason for being has been, has been upended by the, uh, by the pandemic because you suddenly didn't have a value proposition. If, you're, if your annual conference and you get together was the main reason for being there, then, then, you know, and the accreditation factor wasn't necessarily there, then what was the value to your members at that stage? So how did the pandemic change the value uh, proposition? I think one thing has become clear for all of the associations, regardless of scope and size, is that they can no longer survive off this single short en engagement paradigm, but they have to be a value-added presence year-round. I think that's the most significant change in the value proposition. So not leaning too heavily on that annual Congress. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a very dangerous, uh, a very tenuous way of, of having a, a business model is, is depending on that one stream of whether it's engagement or finance, both are interlinked. So uh, it's very tenuous if you depend on, on just that. If you were the leader of an international association, um, how would you be positioning uh, your organization as we go into 2022? As, as an educational resource, as a community, and, and also now more and more as an innovation hub. I'll, I'll be blunt here for, for a moment. Uh, too many associations are, are terribly old-fashioned, and, and many of them proudly so, it seems. I often detect a kind of pride in the conservative, uh, conservatism that still prevails in much of the sector, and this, this almost devastating ethos of we've always done it like that is still very pervasive, and it threatens to condemn many associations to irrelevance in the future because the forces of change that have been unleashed are, are, are not going back in the box, on the contrary. So I would stay abreast of what is happening outside of the sector and outside of the industry my association represents 
and then leverage those ob observations to uh, revitalize my organization and its value proposition. So, for example, one of the most active fields of investment and innovation globally in the last few years, and certainly accelerated by COVID, is education. Right? Upskilling courses, lifelong learning initiatives, uh, niche certifications, cohort-based learning, all of these witnessing tremendous growth and in innovation. Uh, training companies offering both on-site and virtual learning are booming like never before. And as an association, you are presumably the guardians of a, a tremendous amount of industry or sector-specific knowledge. More so than any of these very broad for-profit learning companies who have to painstakingly go looking for specialists every time. So, so I would leverage that and use the, the knowledge of your community to create a learning environment that benefits your members, but also the wider industry. Right? There are people out there on, on YouTube teaching all sorts of things individually, not even as part of an organization, and they get more views than, than many associations do in, in 10 years. I mean, as an association, you, you have the aggregate of the world's most important knowledge, neatly segmented in the form of associations, and very few actually really doing something with that. So, so that's really where I would start. Yeah, some of those YouTube influencers or social media personalities often have a certain cachet or charisma or, or whatever. So maybe associations should think about bringing them in-house, working with them or, or finding their own talent. What do you think would work best? A, a combination of both. It, it's very likely that a lot of associations are sitting on a ton of, of in-house talent, uh, rudimentary as that talent sometimes may be. But that's fine. I mean, one of the one of the things I was just talking about is the the educational sector, the upskilling and training segment of, 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 of the industry, in many cases, the for profit industry is booming. So there are enormous, there are a vast amount of opportunities to upskill your own staff as well, to, to, to take them out of that rudimentary skill set and upskill them to be influencers of, of their own. Right. So a lot of people have that potential in them. They just need a bit of training, a little bit of upskilling, a little bit of coaching and mentorship. And many association executives and staff will have that innate capability. It just needs to be brought out. And that can be done individually or it can be done in combination with bringing in some outside uh, influencers to sort of set the stage and you know, get them excited and show, show them what is possible. So, so probably a combination of both. And for a lot of associations, um, I suppose they used to be the gatekeepers of information. Um, their monthly journal would be uh, something that their members eagerly waited for and the wider community eagerly waited for because it contained information that you couldn't find anywhere else. And now the Internet has kind of undermined that business model. Um, it's not just open source publishing. It's like you mentioned, it's it's any number of social media channels from, from YouTube to, to LinkedIn where people are, are posting information. Maybe for a lot of associations, especially those that don't have such a specialty, um, maybe for those associations, it's now time to think of themselves as curators of information rather than gatekeepers of information so they can package up uh, information that uh, maybe out there, but difficult to find in the white noise, and they can put their their seal of approval on it, perhaps. 
Absolutely. I mean, associations are, are aside from being community builders and, and guardians of knowledge, uh, you know, they're, they're shepherds of, of, of that knowledge and they can really sort of leverage and, and drive that into the world. I think one of the conservative attitudes of associations often is that they're meant to be a closed environment for, the, for their members only. And I think we're going into a more of a top-down world where, yes, you are a quality label, but your purpose is no longer to contain information within a small walled environment of members, but, but leverage the knowledge, the, the aggregate knowledge of all of that community and bring it out into the world. So going from closed and looking inward to being open and looking outward. While the, 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 the closed aspect of it is no longer we're going to be a walled garden. The closed aspect is more that we're curating very carefully who we let in and who we allow to be an advocate and who we allow to, to put forth as a, as a speaker, as, as an authority in terms of that knowledge. That's more where they, where they ought to be. Okay, so we've seen a lot of activity in the meetings tech space over the last two years, including heavy investment in virtual and hybrid platforms, a lot of uh, merger and acquisition activity. What conclusions uh, do you take from that, if any? Yeah, there's been a lot of activity, that's for sure, especially in the last 24 months, as uh, one would expect in a, in a pandemic when everyone is locked in. But, you know, one, one conclusion that, from my end that may surprise a little bit is that uh, digital meetings tech is still embryonic and and that we really shouldn't derive too many conclusions at all from the flurry of activity in in that space you know compared with the 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 sheer size and scope of the meetings industry and and of, of meetings in general because let's not forget that the majority of meetings still happen outside of the meetings industry Right. You and I hopping on a Zoom call is also a meeting, but we didn't get a meeting planner involved. So it's more than just the meetings industry. You know, the, the current size of the digital meetings tech space is comparatively tiny. So, so yes, we've seen some eye-watering funding rounds, but in the grand scheme, those were just rounding errors. I mean, so to me, the most important conclusion to take is really not to take any conclusions. And, and certainly not to believe that this is now how we do things. And, and the future of digital meetings is somehow decided. Far from it, right? We're, we're in a very early and highly experimental stage of the development of these digital realities. And that is a face where the, the very human urge to uh, derive conclusions ought to be suspended entirely, right? Don't, don't conclude anything. Instead, experiment as much as you can there is no wrong way to use these platforms and technologies. And, and over time, what happens is that they, they will find their natural place in the meetings industry and they will be leveraged to their full potential as and when that is appropriate. Right? There will be uh, an equilibrium that replaces this, this ridiculous false dichotomy between the merits of, of digital versus face-to-face. -face. I mean, for example, if indeed it turns out that... Um, COVID will become an endemic illness that flares up, flares up significantly during the winter months, then perhaps those periods are when digital platforms really shine, while the summer months may be reserved for face-to-face -face events and conferences. That's a form of equilibrium, right? And so right now we're still in the, 
you know, the, the, the shiny new toy phase where these new possibilities are somewhat unjustifiably glorified, uh, which as we've seen then leads to them also unjustifiably, unjustifiably becoming vilified by more conservative peers. So it's a, it's a false dilemma that, that is typical of the early stages of a new wave of innovation. Yeah, and that also applies to public discourse in general, especially the stuff we see on social media, this idea that it has to be one or the other, this kind of binary thinking. And I suppose that's one of the things that's frustrated me about the conversations that have been going on online uh, within the meetings industry over the last two years. What often seems like a rather sort of artificial uh, conflict between face-to-face and and, and virtual. Um, And I wonder if how we meet is as important as people seem to think um, in terms of, you know, learning outcomes and and the experience or whether what we're really seeing is a bit of a turf war between competing suppliers to the meetings industry on the one hand, destinations and venues, and on the other hand, uh, tech suppliers. Yeah, I mean, that's that's how it's being portrayed in on social media and, and across all these social channels, because as you rightfully point out that that's how it's always being done, right? In, in a way, I think it's normal because we like to have structure. The unknown is not a comfortable position to be in. So it makes sense, uh, you know, cognitively, it, it makes more sense to be in one or the other camp, not somewhere in the middle, because that's a very uncomfortable position to be in. So, so you pick your camp and you sort of entrench yourself and dig in and then try to come up as, and, uh, with as many arguments as possible. But, you know, I don't think that's the fault of the technology itself. The technology itself doesn't have agency. It doesn't decide how it's used. That's mostly uh, because, you know, in in the case of technology, the commercial players who leverage all of that new technological might, they like to spin those stories, right? If If you're a tech company and you leverage these brand new technologies, then obviously you want them to be seen as not a solution, but as the solution. And that's where you get these kind of dichotomies. And that's how people uh, phrase it. And the reality is, as I was pointing out in the last uh, uh, question, is, is that really that's a hallmark of the early stages of a new wave of innovation. What happens over time is that you, you get an equilibrium. Right. You get this equilibrium where people start putting it in the right context and they start using it to their advantage as and when it is to their advantage to leverage it. And that is what will happen as well. So the meetings planners who, who still, you know, the conservative side of meetings planners who may still have this existential angst towards towards this new technology because of the way it's being portrayed uh, by the other side, so to speak, you know, they, they really shouldn't be so fearful because that's just not what's going to happen. On the contrary, they will add this to their arsenal of tools and they will leverage leverage this as and when it fits them and their customers. So it just expands their the scope of their work. And that's a good thing, surely. Some people might be surprised to hear you describe meetings tech as in its infancy. Um, you said it was at an embryonic stage of development. I think a lot of people using meetings tech in the last two years the sense I get there is, is that they were very surprised about how good it was, um, how good the uh, audio visual was, um, the links all worked, that kind of thing. Um, so can you give us a sense of how far you think Meetings Tech has to go when it might start to uh, mature, when you might start to see the development uh, plateau a bit? 
Um, it, it, it's, it's notoriously difficult to predict anything in, in tech, but I would say if, if, you, if you take you know, recent history as, as a bit of an indicator, again, not to fixate on specific timelines because that's pretty much impossible because, all of, because of all of the variables involved. But if you look, for example, an exercise that I recommend doing when I talk about technology and innovation is look at the, you can find this online, look at the first versions of some major platforms that everyone knows. Right, look up the first version of the website, or because it's still a website, the website that is Amazon.com or Facebook or eBay. And just look at those first versions and see how rudimentary they seem to you now, while at the time, several years into their existence already, I'm not talking you know, the first day, but several years into their existence, they were already dominant platforms. They were already trendsetters in their respective uh, industries or segments of industries. I mean, they were already destined to become the greatest new things in the te technological world. But just look, just go back and look at how rudimentary those website pages were. I mean, Facebook didn't even have a, a wall in the beginning. People forget that. You know, Amazon was just a, a bunch of hyperlinks on a page. And so it takes, even at the blistering speed of those companies, because they've had unprecedented investment and growth, as we all know those stories. But even at their speed, it took them a solid 10 to 15 years to get to a level of maturity where we now say like, okay, they're absolutely dominant. And so it's very reasonable to predict a similar timeline before we can say that any kind of event tech reaches a level of maturity that we say like, okay, this is now fully mature, where we look back in, in 10 years at the event platforms of today, and I won't name any names, but we all know the, the so-called big names in the, in the field, and it will look absolutely childlike, rudimentary as, as, as they did back in, in the day. So this idea that, that this is now in any way settled is, is, is ludicrous. I mean, we're looking at a much longer timeline. The Facebook wall. I... I remember the announcement. I remember people getting excited that Facebook now had a wall, but I can't remember what was there before the Facebook wall. Well, it was just profiles. You could click around. You could find old friends and view their profiles. That was it. There was no updates. <laughs> there was no wall, no, no like button. There was yeah. no interaction of any kind virtually. So it was very, very basic. just want to speak a bit more broadly about technology and how we engage with it. Um, it just seems to me a lot of writers, futurists, thinkers on the subject um, tend to frame technology um, in almost evolutionary terms as though every new invention is part of some natural progress that is inevitable and um, we are just going to get swept up in its path and we, we can't really do much about it. And while I can see the logic of that, I do have a little bit of a problem with it. To me, it seems to strip uh, humans of, of their agency. And it's a narrative that seems to suit um, very powerful vested interests uh, in Silicon Valley, basically. Um, so I just wanted to get to get your thoughts on that, how, how we should look at technology and how we should, um, how we should engage with it. What's the healthiest way to engage with it? 
Well, I mean, considering the, the profound effect of technology on, on, on the world in general and how it dominates, that's a, a very deep question. <laughs> One that's probably worthy of, of long discussions and debates for, for months and years. But trying to condense it, um, it's, it's interesting that you use Darwinian evolution in the framing of that question find that very interesting. See, see, to me, one of the most fascinating aspects of evolution by natural selection, Darwinism, is just how often it has led to nothing at all. Mm. Right? Evolution is really not a success story. It's, a, it's actually a tale of continual failure over a very long yeah. period of time. Right? Most of the genetic variations that, uh, that change the appearance or characteristics of offspring they didn't yield an advantage significant enough for it to spread and become more or less a, a permanent new feature, right? And technology is similar in the, in the sense that um, tiny vari variations are introduced into the technological landscape all the time, but very few of those ever make an impact large enough to become permanent fixtures, right? And those that do, those that do make it often have an outsized impact on the flow of technological evolution, while the, the, the fate of all the other small changes is, is oblivion, basically. Right? So, so similar to natural selection, the, the surviving features that become the new standard in the technology world do so because they of, offer a, a distinct advantage. Now, the, the difference is, and the question is, who gets to leverage that advantage? In, in an ideal world, those new creations would be uh, democratically and equitably distributed to all of humanity to make the most of. But, but instead, what happens is that a small and very powerful band of stakeholders will, will pounce on any new advantage uh, to leverage, leverage it for immense profit, as we've seen many times uh, in, in the recent decades. So in the world of today, the, the, the bulk of our technological infrastructure is in the hands of very few companies controlled by a tiny elite. So it's, it's not technological evolution that we, that we should resist. I mean, let that happen in a, in a similar way as natural selection. What we should resist is the current norm that the potential advantages of new discoveries and creations are sort of immediately usurped by a very small cabal of people with almost absolute control. N none of that is the fault of technology itself. So it's a it's kind of a pointless waste of energy to resist uh, technological evolution itself. If we want to control our, our destiny and have agency over, as you were saying, and, and retain our agency as human beings, if we want to control our destiny as far as technological advancement is concerned, we should resist freely handing over all that power to a small group of companies and people. Yeah, That's I just say that there's, a, well, I agree with, with, with what you're saying. I think there's an added dimension now in that it seems to me a lot of digital technology, and here I'm talking about social media mainly, has now an inbuilt addictiveness to it, which is deliberate. And I would suggest that if you removed the notifications setting on a lot of these social media platforms, the whole business model would collapse quite quickly because it's relying on that dopamine hit we all get when we see that we've got 50 likes or 100 likes, if you're lucky. Um, so that, to me, 
suggest that technology now, and I'm talking about online digital technology, automatically reduces human agency because there's a level of addiction. And that's something uh, new and something that we should perhaps be be wary of. Yeah, I mean, it's true. And it goes back to, to what I was saying. The, 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 the problem is, is that we are still okay under the current economic paradigm that we live under and under which individually, over which we don't have any control. But the, the, the problem with that economic paradigm is that those new technologies inevitably always end up in the hands of very powerful companies that then absorb it for profit and for profit in 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 not just the world of today but the world of people in general is the best way to do that is to leverage people's addictions whether you're selling likes or whether you're selling cigarettes or whether you're selling alcohol you know in in inevitably the best way to to make a lot of money in a short period of time is to leverage people's addictions and nothing allows you to do that as quickly and as affordably as technology because you know at least you still have to produce and bottle and ship alcohol and cigarettes you know technology you can unleash basically at the at the click of a button uh, to billions of people so we are we have become sort of desensitized to that and we're okay with giving all of that new technology and that power to a handful of companies and now of course there's this whole metaverse thing and and all the other things are being spoken about and and we should we should think about that it's not the it's not the fault of technology it's not technology that gets people hooked on likes it is us all of the all of us collectively being okay with letting that power sit in the hands of very few who exploit it for profit, right? And I don't, I don't presume to have the answer to that because we do need uh, a system of commerce. We do need companies. We do need companies to thrive and, and build innovative solutions. But somehow we have to claw back some of that uh, authority that we've willingly given them to, to create more systems of addiction because that's not going to stop. That's going to accelerate uh, dramatically in the coming uh, years and, and decade. And obviously there are issues here for, for anyone organising business events or international association meetings, uh, not least around issues of privacy, data, all that kind of stuff. You mentioned there the metaverse, uh, Mark. What, what can you tell us about that? Or is it still still so embryonic that it's uh, all just a bit of a pipe dream? Yeah, um, there won't be a metaverse. <laughs> not, not, not for a very long time and probably not ever. Not, at least not in the truest sense of... of of a word that is admittedly very vague and ill-defined to begin with. Uh, you know, the, the, the metaverse is a good example of a new wave of technology uh, being claimed by, by a small number of ultra-powerful companies who want to give it their own spin, essentially. But what it would have to be, the metaverse, to, to truly live up to the, to the metaverse moniker is a global, real-time and interoperable sort of three-dimensional space where anyone can choose to become part of a, of a digital mirror world. And you should be able to, to roam around the, the virtual equivalent of a global society and, and be able to avail of all kinds of services and engage in commerce and collaboration and much more. And, and that view, that vision of a metaverse, which is the true concept of a metaverse, that's a pipe dream for at least in the short term, and short term I'm talking at least 10 years, 
for technical reasons mostly that I don't want to get into too much. Latency is a, is a big problem, uh, but it also comes with significant uh, ethical challenges. Uh, however, what you already see and what will happen is that a lot of companies will jump on the, the metaverse bandwagon and start selling you know, 3D plugins to uh, events platforms and applications as their metaverse product. But, but that's nonsense. I mean, deploying a, a closed deploying a closed 3D rendered environment where avatars can, can roam around and engage in all sorts of shenanigans is not the metaverse. That's called a game. And there's absolutely nothing new about that. Nothing. Been doing that for 20 years. If you're, you know, betraying my generation now, if you grew up playing uh, Unreal Tournament uh, in between lunch breaks and, and you're sort of shooting each other in these 3D arenas and taunting each other in a virtual space, you know what that is like. And that hasn't changed so much in, in, in the last 20, 25 years. Just the quality has gone up. So, so I would say don't worry if you're a meetings planner and you're listening to that or a conference organizer or a venue. Don't, don't worry about the metaverse. What you should worry about, to me, what I often talk about and what, 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 I, what I am about, is, is worry about changing your mindset. Worry about developing a broad understanding of the forces that shape the technological landscape of the present and the future. And develop a, a much more experimental mindset so that no matter what comes, you know, what is the next new thing to take the world by storm, you have this mental uh, flexibility to leverage, leverage it to your advantage because you can and you will be able to. No matter if it's the metaverse or some new thing or NFTs or DOAs or, or any of the other buzzwords that are currently floating around, most of which no one will, no one will be speaking about in five years, by the way. So do a bit of background reading, a bit of wider reading, get behind the headlines, try and understand the scale and pace of technology and how it might affect your organisation um, and how you should respond to it. But don't worry too much about something called the metaverse um, appearing as a product uh, anytime soon. No, exactly. I think what, what is really sorely lacking in, in this industry and in almost in every other industry Every industry, aside from the tech industry itself, by its nature, is this, this, this mindset of, of innovation, which is born initially from understanding the forces that shape technology and by consequence the world. You know, understanding the history of technology, where it has come from. And this has been true throughout history. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a cliche in, in, in history teaching as well, but it's true, is that you, you can't really understand the future and where we're going unless you know where we came from. That has been true, generally speaking, in, in historical terms. That is especially true in, in recent technological terms, right? You don't have to even understand and grasp what the metaverse is because even the people developing it don't know what it is. They sort of iteratively are growing and sort of rolling with the punches if you want. Right? And that's how innovation comes about. So the idea that you, you have to suddenly understand how, as a meetings planner, how are you going to leverage the metaverse to your advantage is completely ludicrous because the people inventing it don't even know what it is yet, but that's not going to stop them from developing it. And that mindset, that sort of iterative 
mindset of, of understanding where we come from and, and, and not being afraid to experiment going forward means that not only will meetings planners be able to leverage it to their advantage, because it's such a broad sector, such a large industry, I firmly believe that if we get people up to speed and educate them on this, this industry specifically will play an enormous role in shaping what the metaverse can become. So, so it's not about like subjecting them to it and scrambling and trying to figure out how can we survive this revolution. I think with some tact, with, with a good approach, with education, this industry is primed to help, to help shape the future of this. And that's an important message. And it's a good message to end on, I think, Mark. Thank you so much for your time and your words of wisdom today. As I mentioned at the start, you're now an AMI, Association Meetings International columnist, so we look forward to your first uh, your first article, which I think is going in uh, on the, online in February, um, and we shall speak again uh, on, this, on this show, I'm sure, uh, during the course of the year. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jane. It was a pleasure.